So we're doing uh, another massive question, just answering questions, just because so many came in, just gonna do the first eight. So the first question was, can divorced people receive communion? The answer is yes. Even in canon law, canon law says that there may sometimes be a moral reason that you should get divorced in case of abuse or other things. So it's not divorce, it's remarriage that could be a problem. So yes, divorced people can receive communion. I have a friend whose mother has been divorced for like decades and decades. Um, and her first husband died. Well, she has no second husband. Uh, her husband died. She still won't go to communion because, you know, decades ago she was divorced for very good reasons. And I've told her that, but she's of that generation who doesn't, she'll go to mass, but she won't receive communion. And she doesn't listen to me because she's Irish and you can't tell those girls anything. Um, so it's actually just remarriage. But even if you're remarried, I, I can take care of that for you. If you want to get married in the Catholic Church, let me know. Uh, so that's the first question. Second question, what do the color of the altar server's robes mean? So didn't, wasn't planning this, but we changed our altar server's robes to white. They used to be red uh, with a white surplus, it's kind of like a half shirt. Um, let me explain what that means, because everything means something. In the Bible and in Catholicism, every color, every number, it all means something. So we used to have red robes, red cassocks. So here's a question, and not martyrs, because that's, that's their color, but who, which people in the Catholic Church wear red? Cardinals, uh, bishops in a way. So actually how the red cassock came about for altar servers was um, in the 16th century, um, they zhuzhed it up a little bit more. And so for a papal mass or for a bishop's mass, the altar servers would switch from white robes to red robes because bishops wear red. Does that make sense? So when I got here, I was kind of surprised you guys had red robes because I was like, do these people think I'm a bishop or a pope? Um, so they're actually supposed to be for, a, so in the 16th century, it was started for a bishop's mass. The norm would, ancient-wise, would be to wear a white alb. So a white alb symbolizes baptism. So everybody who's been baptized, you were clothed in a white cloth. All those in heaven wear these albs. So the norm for an altar server is a white alb, unless a bishop or pope comes here and celebrating mass, then we may switch to red. Um, does that make any sense? So, um, and then the surplus, that's that little half shirt, that was actually invented in the 11th century, but became popular in the um, 16th century again. You'd wear that if you're a minister. And just because I know this stuff, I'm very detailed. Our altar servers used to wear square-cut ones, but actually, just FYI, square-cut means you're an ordained priest. Uh, round one means that you're not a priest. So once again, our altar servers were wearing square-cut ones. I was like, wow, we have a lot of ordained priests in this parish. <laughs> um, okay, here. If you, somebody wrote, 
If you go to communion without going to confession first, are you participating in murdering Jesus? Now, that seems like an extreme question, but a fairly famous person, not a priest, not a theologian, said that recently, that if you don't go to confession before receiving communion, you are murdering Jesus. Well, that's actually not true. So just a quick history of the Catholic Church. I don't know if you know this, but did you know in Catholicism, um, uh, in the ancient church, you could only go to confession once in a lifetime. Once in a lifetime. And so what they would do is they'd spend a whole year preparing for confession. And this part is amazing. So they would spend a whole year. Now, Jesus mentions other ways your sins can be forgiven. He mentions the Eucharist, um, almsgiving to the poor, and fasting. Confession is not just about your sins getting forgiven. Confession, yes, your sins are forgiven. But when the priest does this gesture, this is a consecratory gesture. You are consecrated to be this force of forgiveness in the world. So that was considered a very special role. You are consecrated at, in confession to be this force of forgiveness. So on Easter Sunday, Easter Saturday uh, is when you would have your sins forgiven. Then on Easter Sunday at the end of Mass, you invite those people who had gone to confession, and everybody would kneel and receive a blessing from those who are consecrated to show the world what forgiveness is. Now, how it changed was um, Ireland was one of the first places converted. And Ireland, in the fifth century, was this golden age of spirituality. But Ireland didn't work on a diocesan system. It worked on a monastic system. And monks always have spiritual directors. So the, the Celts did the same practice. That even if you're a layperson, you would pray for a spiritual director in Gaelic and Anamkara. And you would give your confession to your Anamkara and then go to the priest once a month for absolution. Once a month, you'd meet with your Anamkara, and the Anamkara, after you confess your sins, would send you to the priest. So what happened is that from, Northern, uh, from Ireland, Northern Europe gets evangelized. So what you have is um, Ireland and Northern Europe going to confession once a month and, and Germany, and Italy and Spain and the Middle East and the Greeks, they would go once in a lifetime until the 13th century. And then the Fourth Lateran Council, the bishops got together and said, listen, we need one practice. The Fourth Lateran Council was 1215. So think about this. For the vast majority of Catholic history, that's 13th century, Catholics went once in a lifetime. They took it so serious. They usually saved it towards the end of their life. Um, so the point being, when the guy says, um, if you don't go to confession before receiving communion, you're murdering Jesus, that theology came about in like the 17th century with this uh, heresy called Jansenism. Jansenism is everything's a sin. All, all, most people are going to burn in hell. Everything's a sin. And you should go to confession as much as possible because you're sinning every day. Well, Jansenism is a heresy. So that's actually kind of an abuse of the sacrament. Does that make sense? So, uh, no. Um, you are not murdering Jesus. Uh, okay, make sense? 
Okay. So, um, oh, what's the difference between a priest and a deacon? At this point, I could tell a joke, but you know, I don't believe in that. But so, what's the difference between a deacon and a priest? So, think about this. It's right in the Bible. You have the 12 apostles who have leadership over a couple hundred uh, disciples. And the church, and this is amazing, the church starts off with a couple hundred, and then within a short time expands to millions. So in uh, Acts of the Apostles, it's expanding. So what the apostles do, they ordain people as episcopoi. Um, so as a church spreads, the apostles, they ordain episcopoi, Timothy, Titus. But the church keeps expanding. And they, the, in Acts, they say, there's just too much work for us to do. So they ordain deacons so deacons could do the work. And deacons were in charge of taking care of the poor and administration. And then the apostles, they could teach and uh, celebrate sacraments. So the word deacon, it just means server or worker. And then the church keeps expanding, so the, they still need more help, so they ordain priests, priests to help bishops teach and do sacraments. So all there is is those three things, bishops, deacons, or priests. That's all there is. Pre deacons, they do work. Priests, we just look pretty. Um, but so that's all there is. And deacons, we're usually actually more competent with, competent with administration. So if you look at the history of the Catholic Church, really for the first couple hundred years, most bishops were deacons, not priests, because they're the most competent. Um, and so that's all there is. And now, if you become Bishop of Rome, you're Pope. So think about this. My joke is I am one step away from becoming Pope. Technically, that is true. That is true. I'm one step away. Um, let's see. Oh. Uh, oh. Why is our, our father different than non-Catholics? Um, well, that's really kind of funny. So this is, to me, kind of funny. So um, uh, I get this question all the time from non-Catholics. Why do you Catholics say the, our father differently? We don't. We say it exactly as Christ taught it. What happened is that when Martin Luther broke away from the Catholic Church, he wanted to change the Mass a little. So, before receiving the bread of life. Now, the Our Father mistranslated, you don't pray for your daily bread, you pray for the bread of life, which is on the altar. So, before we receive the bread of life, we pray for it. And then, after we pray for it, um, it's called an embolism. The priest then says this thing that we may be free from sin and united in the kingdom as we wait for Christ. And then the people respond back, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours. The kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours is if we're going to receive the bread of life and enter into the kingdom of heaven, our life is not about ourselves. It's the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours. It's those three things, it's the opposite of the three temptations in the Gospel of Matthew that Christ uh, faced with Satan. So it's a Catholic liturgical response that people are giving for the kingdom, power, and the glory. Martin Luther took, uh, edited out what the priest said, the embolism. So it goes in Lutheran church, um, 
our father straight to the Catholic liturgical response. So people confused that that was part of the Lord's Prayer. And then later in the 19th century, they actually added it into Protestant Bibles. There's Catholic Bibles and Protestant Bibles. Protestant Bibles, it's Martin Luther took out a couple uh, books of the Bible. He also added some words. One of the things they added um, in the 19th century was for the kingdom, power, and the glory. So when they say, how come you guys pray the Lord's Prayer differently? Uh, no, you're praying a Catholic liturgical response. Um, make sense? Okay, one more. What? Uh, oh, uh, God cares about dogma. Uh, define what a dogma is. So this is really easy. Mentioned it before. It's called the hierarchy of truths. Catholic believes, Catholics believe some things are more important than others. That first you have dogma. Dogma is everything Christ taught the apostles and then we are going to pass on to our children. That's, if you don't believe in Catholic dogma, then we would say you're no longer Catholic. You must believe in Catholic dogma. That's everything Christ taught. It's in the Gospels, the sacraments, and the creed. Pretty easy. That's what Catholic dogma is. You must believe that. The one below it is Catholic doctrine. That's things that you should believe because we believed them for 2,000 years. But nowhere did Christ demand that you believe that. So that goes from must to should. And then you have Catholic teachings. Catholic teachings, that's a little bit different. That's an opinion of popes and bishops. And we openly admit that changes throughout the centuries. Uh, but it's our best moral guess at this time period. But we openly admit some Catholic teachings have been wrong. Um, so you're morally obligated to listen to Catholic teaching, but not dictate to your conscience. So I'll give you an example. And I have to tell you, I love Pope Francis. But what he says about capitalism, I totally disagree with him. I have a degree in uh, accounting. I don't think he's right there. No, I absolutely love Pope Francis. I disagree with what he says about capitalism. Does that make me a bad Catholic? No, it's Catholic teaching. I am allowed to respectfully disagree with that. Does that make sense? Um, and I, I've done my obligation. I listened to what he had to say, but I think capitalism is a little bit more complicated than how he presents it. So no, I'm not a bad Catholic. The bottom one is um, disciplines. And we openly admit Jesus doesn't care. So it goes from must, should, listen but not dictate, to Christ doesn't even care. We do it for good order, like what color of vestment to wear. Da, 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 da. Jesus doesn't care about that stuff. I do. <laughs> um, so that's a hierarchy of truth. Um, next question was, um, oh, okay. Uh, oh, I forgot. Um, why do Catholics do the sign of the cross? Is it a prayer? Yes, it's a prayer. Why is really simple. Think about this. The Bible starts with the tree of life. If you eat the fruit of the tree of life, you gain eternal life. A very rare phrase in the Bible, eternal life. How do you get eternal life? You eat the right thing. The tree of life, the Bible starts with the tree. Then in the middle, you have the cross. And the cross in the Bible is called a tree. We eat from the tree of life, the Eucharist. Um, and then the end of the Bible, it ends with a uh, tree. A and all the saints and angels in heaven, how do they have eternal life? They eat from the tree of life. 
So the Bible begins with a tree, the cross, ends with it. So Catholics, we always begin and end every prayer with the sign of the cross. Also, if you look in the Bible, like Ezekiel, Ezekiel gets to, the angel gives him this vision. And some people who act so religious, they're actually covered with filth. Other people, they have a tau, which is a, a Greek letter, it looks like a cross. They have it inscribed on their bodies because they are God's possession. If you look in the book of Revelation, same thing. They have inscribed on them this cross. So if heaven, everybody has a cross on them, we begin and end every prayer in the sign of the cross. We mark ourselves as God's property. So yes, it's a prayer. Um, oh, okay, this one, if I understand the question, it says, how can we be a thorn in their side with all the issues present in our culture? Well, here's the thing. Now, about being a, a thorn in people's side, I have to say, that's wrong. And that's me saying it's wrong because my superpower is that I'm very good at irritating people. It's, no, really, I'm not, that's my superpower. I can just poke and irritate, seriously. Deacon, back me Amen. up and see, swear to God, <laughs> it is my power. You want somebody to harass you, that's me. But morally, are we supposed to do that with people who disagree with us? No, quite the, the readings are the opposite. Uh, you know, David shows mercy to the guy who's trying to kill him. The whole gospel is do not judge. You have no right to judge. And when he says no right to judge, you have no right to judge who deserves your mercy and compassion. Everybody deserves your mercy and compassion. And then, and I need a uh, volunteer. Jimmy, get up here. You're going to volunteer. I'm going to hit you in the face. Um, and then Jesus goes off on how you treat other people. Mercy and love here. Stand up there so they can see it. Um, and uh, even higher. Um, so... Jesus has this phrase where it says, turn the other cheek. He does, has a lot of those things. And last week, I was so amazed. This girl, she's a high school, she says, oh, we're studying Roman law. And she's, I was so excited. Did you know when it says, turn the other cheek? That's one of many things Jesus says that he's asking you to break Roman law. So the Roman law is this. Um, Romans had like 17, 16 or 17 levels of classes, and you don't mix with people outside your class. And if I am far superior than Jimmy, let's face it, no offense, um, uh, what I can do to show Jimmy he's a piece of trash is what you do is you would, I would say, I would hit him with the back of my right hand to his right cheek, which means you're trash. So when Jesus says, no, to our enemies, we pray for our enemies. We don't retaliate with the same kind of anger. But then he says, turn the other cheek. He says, and like they would have known what that meant. So if I'm going to put Jimmy in his spot and say you're a piece of trash, and Jesus says, turn the other cheek, turn your, uh, not the right, turn your cheek away from me. Good job. So uh, I can't hit him, right? So that means I have to come over here. But what if Jimmy turns the other cheek again? No, 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 that, you're, you're, that's your right cheek. Very good. All I have is the left cheek. I have to come over here. And if he keeps turning, turn again. 
I'm going to look like an idiot. Does that make sense? Thanks, thanks for helping me look like an idiot. Um, so when he says, turn the other cheek, what it really means is don't let people denigrate you. Never let people treat you like trash. But we're not going to show them the same amount of anger and hatred that they're showing us. We're going to force people to recognize our dignity. That's a really shocking thing that Jesus said. You, so what happens? Either I look like a fool and have to walk away, or I get so mad at Jimmy, I punch him. But if I punch him, if I walk away, it means we're equal. If I hit him, not like this, but hit him with a punch, that means Jimmy's my equal. I'm willing to take a punch in the face, but you will treat me as an equal. So what do we do to our enemies? Do we treat them with, you know, try and be a sword, a thorn in their side and annoy them? If they show us hate, I'm going to show you hate. Uh, you disagree with me, I'm going to annoy you. No, we're going to pray for our enemies, for a conversion. We will even suffer, but we will not let our enemies treat us with indignity. We want their conversion that everybody's life is sacred not just to turn up the flames of hatred. Um, that's what Jesus says when he says, no, love your enemies, turn your other cheek. We will force them to recognize the dignity of everybody. So that's our massive questions. Please stand and let us profess our faith. Hello, this is Father Len McMillan. I'd like to take a moment to thank you for listening to our podcast. If they've been a blessing to you, I'd also like to invite you to prayerfully discern supporting the podcast financially. Your generosity would help support the ongoing production and distribution of the podcast. If you'd like to make a donation, you can simply click the link in the podcast description. Be sure to tell us your donation is for the podcast in the comments section of the submission form. Again, thank you for your support as we seek to share the good news of the gospel. May God bless you for your generosity.